0: Back in September, an unfortunate event happened outside of a Kansas City shopping center. A young woman was attacked in broad daylight. It was a brutal, humiliating attack. And no one intervened. No one stepped in to help. Not even a security guard who just stood by and watched. As the assault continued, cars pulled off of the road into the parking lot to join the audience. And and no one did anything except to, of course, pull out their phones and capture it on video. And maybe it's fitting then that the victim's mother first learned about the attack when she saw the video on Facebook. Sadly, such stories are not rare. They are Common enough, in fact, that they have been given a name. It's called the bystander effect. Sociologists tell us that it is a social psychological phenomenon which makes people less likely to help when they witness something in a public setting like this. Now, we might look at this and see it as some sort of evidence of the decline of society, but the origins of the term go back more than 50 years to 1964. A 28-year-old woman named Catherine Genovese was raped and killed in separate late-night attacks in Queens, New York. The assault unfolded over 30 minutes in three separate attacks. During that time, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens witnessed as the killer stalked, raped, and stabbed This young woman. Twice he was spooked when somebody turned on their lights or talked to their neighbor, but he returned each time to finish the job. Of those 38 witnesses, only one person called the police, and this was after Catherine was already dead. One witness said that he, quote, didn't want to get involved. Another said, I was tired. I went back to bed. But most of these people were not cold-hearted. Most of them were not unconcerned. Some of them were, were frozen by fear. If I intervene, something will happen to me. Some of them assumed that well, somebody else has already called the police. Somebody else is already doing something because obviously a lot of people have to be witnessing this. Some of them assumed that, that others were more qualified to lend aid. And witnesses choose to remain bystanders for far more than just violent crimes. People will stand by as people drown, are trapped in fires, die of drug overdoses. And it's become common enough of a problem that, that states have passed laws that are designed to turn witnesses into first responders. Do you know what these laws are called? Good Samaritan law. That's right. But a law can never move the human heart in the same way that merciful love can. Now just the term Good Samaritan, it takes us to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 to one of Jesus' most famous parables. This story is known almost universally as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But you'll notice in the text that nowhere is he called good. Rather, it's the compassionate character of his kind, merciful love that has earned him this reputation. However, if you were among Jewish company in Jesus' day and you used the phrase Good Samaritan, you'd likely be punched in the face, if not worse. See, in the minds of the Jews, Good Samaritan, that was an oxymoron. A contradiction in terms like jumbo shrimp or military intelligence. In the mind of every Jew, there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. I'll give you some historical context to this. You'd have to wind back the clock six centuries almost. It's a long time from our perspective. But the nation of Babylon had invaded the nation of Judah and conquered Judah. And they took many of the Jewish citizens into captivity and exiled them in Babylon, resettled them there. However, the poor, the unimportant, those that the Babylonian officials considered undesirable, they they let them be. They could stay. Meanwhile, they brought in conquered peoples from other areas and resettled them there in Judah. And there, the Jews that remained and these pagan idol-worshipping people from other parts of the world um, they intermarried, they interbred. Now, fast forward about five decades, the Jews return from Babylon. They return from their captivity, and they come back to a destroyed and ruined city. And they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as they're working on the walls, the offspring of the Jews that had been left behind and and these foreigners that had come in and intermarried with them, they want to help. Let us help rebuild our city. But the Jews that had returned looked down on these people as, as, well, you're just nothing but half-breeds and dogs. You have no part in this. This isn't your city. So no. And thus began the hostility and animosity between these two groups. And that continued to build for centuries. So that by Jesus' day, if you were a godly, righteous Jew living in Judah in the south and you wanted to travel to Galilee in the north, you wouldn't walk straight north through Samaria. Instead, you would go east, cross over the Jordan River. You would travel up the far side of the river and cross back over a journey that took you 30 miles out of your way on foot. That's how deep their racial hatred was. And it's a racism that that rivals the worst of what our own country has experienced. The fact that Jesus picked a Samaritan as the hero of this story tells us a lot about the point that Jesus was trying to make. Now, this story is an answer to a question that was posed by an expert in the law. Uh, An expert in the law. This would be a religious lawyer who specialized in the intricacies of the Mosaic law. And as an expert in the law, he knew that the Old Testament law commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he asked the question, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is and then I can love them, but then I don't have to love anybody else. Also, as an expert in the law, he would have despised Samaritans. And you'll notice if if you look at the story there in Luke chapter 10, he can't even bring himself to use the word. When Jesus asks, who was a neighbor? He doesn't answer the Samaritan. He answers the one who had mercy on him. And this question was an attempt to justify a common Jewish excuse for not loving their neighbor. You see, God said, love your neighbor as yourself. But some of them interpreted it this way Love your neighbor, that is your fellow Jew, as yourself. So they narrowed the focus way down so that God was only talking about people who, who looked like them and who agreed with them. Others took the command this way Love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy. So they ended up making the command say the opposite of what it intended. It no longer was about loving your neighbor. It, it instead gave you permission to hate those that weren't your neighbor. They excuse themselves by redefining the terms. Always be on guard against subtly changing how you see what the Scripture says so that it ends up saying what you want it to say rather than what it simply says. Because we do that enough and we end up making the Bible say the opposite of what it actually says. And so Jesus tells this story. A story that, that shatters all of their rationalizations. A, a, a story which undermines any attempt to justify racism. And the scene that Jesus picks for this story would have been painfully familiar to his audience. The road down from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous. And it was literally a trip down. And only 17 miles, Wyatt, you drop from an altitude of 2,550 feet above sea level to 770 feet below sea level. That's quite a bit. You see, you were heading down towards the Dead Sea. And if you're standing on the shores of the Dead Sea, you're standing on the lowest point on planet Earth that you can be standing and not be underwater. And this journey down was, was treacherous. Some of the most treacherous terrain in all of Israel. have got a picture on the screen here. This is the, 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 the road as it exists today. And, and you can tell just by looking at that, there's probably a lot of good spots for robbers to hide. Now, today, it's just a popular hiking trail. You can go to Israel and you can hike from Jerusalem to Jericho and you're probably not going to get waylaid on the way. But in Jesus' day, every Jew feared making this trip. They would do everything they could to not travel this road alone. And if they had to travel alone, they hurried through as quickly as possible. And with this scene, Jesus sets the stage for one of the most dramatic illustrations of merciful love ever given. And notice that Jesus' definition of love here has nothing to do with the warm fuzzies or how somebody makes you feel. The Samaritan has no idea who the victim is. The victim is completely unable to reciprocate in any way. Merciful love is defined purely by action. Doing the right thing. Doing what is needed. Now there are some people in life who are takers. What is yours is mine and I'll take it. And and that's the robbers, the thieves in this story. They're takers. Most people in life though aren't takers. They are simply keepers. What is mine is mine and I'll keep it. Thank you very much. They're not criminal. They're not immoral. They're not mean. They're just minding their own business. They're just going about their own way. And the priest and the Levite are both keepers. Yet to Jesus' audience, they represented what it meant to know and to love God. But they did not show God's merciful love. But there are a few. They're not takers. They're not keepers, they're givers. What's mine is yours, and I'll give it. Now, sitting here this morning, we're not Samaritans. I don't think any of us are Jewish. I could be wrong. Hopefully, none of you is a highway bandit. And none of you are a priest or a Levite However, I would say that in the eyes of the world, as a follower of Christ, you represent what it means to know and to love God. But I believe that each one of us has the potential to play each one of these roles. As we travel along the sometimes treacherous road of life, sometimes we're the victim. We've probably all been the victim at one point or another. And we find ourselves in a desperate situation where we need someone else to not be afraid, to not be too busy, to not just walk on by, but to show us merciful love. And some of you are sitting here this morning. You're here this morning because somebody showed you merciful love along the way. And maybe that someone's also sitting in this. But we will also have occasion in life, and these opportunities are much more frequent, where we will have the choice and we will choose whether we will simply be a bystander like the priest or the Levite or those standing outside of a Kansas City shopping center where we look the other way, we ignore the hurts of those around us, we are fearful of what might happen to us we're too busy, we're too preoccupied, and so we walk on by. Or, we choose to get involved. We choose to show merciful love. To share our blessings and to shoulder their burdens. We make their hurts ours and our joys theirs. That's merciful love. And it's a love that doesn't just feel something. It does something. Our world defines love by how you feel. And if you're not feeling it, you don't have to do anything. But Jesus defines love by what you do. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus shows us that merciful love does five things. And I want to go through these five things real quickly this morning. First of all, A merciful love is a love that sees. It's a love that sees. Now, all three of these characters, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all see the man. The question is, who or what did they see? Verse 31, the priest, quote, "...when he saw him, he passed by on the other side." Verse 32, the Levite, "...when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side." But in verse 33, it says the Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion. They all saw the man beaten, battered, bruised, and bleeding. But they all saw something different. What did the priest see? What did the Levite see? I think they may have seen an interruption. An obstacle. I've got things to do. I've got places to go. I've got people to see. I, I'm too busy. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to stop and get involved. And maybe one of these guys is like some of us guys when we get on the road. You know, we, we're making good time. Hey, if I keep up this pace, we'll be, I'll be in Jericho by dinner. No, we're not stopping the car. Maybe they saw Him as a threat. Maybe they saw Him lying there and they looked up in those rocky crags and thought those thieves might still be around here somewhere. I best not bother. The Samaritan, however, comes along and he sees the man with merciful eyes. He sees a neighbor in need. And so he has compassion. He sees someone that could very well be Him if the sandal were on the other foot. Because a merciful love sees people in their need. However, just seeing someone in their need isn't enough. Because you can see someone and it it tugs on your heart. You might see somebody in terrible need and, and you even have to wipe a tear from your eye. You might even whisper a quick prayer, Dear Lord, just please be with this situation. But merciful love doesn't stop with just seeing, it goes further. A merciful love doesn't just see, a merciful love goes. The Samaritan's compassion leads to action. Look at verse thirty four. He went to him. And this is where we first we see the first difference between the Samaritan and the priest and Levite. The priest and Levite both cross by to the other side. They put as much distance as possible between themselves and the person in need. But the Samaritan comes along and he sees him and he goes to him. First responders are those that go to a problem when everyone else is running away. The police head into a violent gunfight when everyone else is fleeing and seeking cover. Firefighters run into a burning building when everyone else is running out. EMTs run towards those who are wounded and injured when the rest of us are rubbernecking from a safe distance away. Why do they do that? And maybe more importantly, how do they do that? Because our natural instinct is fight or flight. How do they go against this natural instinct and go toward the problem? They do it by training. Because they have trained to do the right thing the right way over and over again. Brothers and sisters, I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, We have been called by our Lord and Savior to be spiritual first responders. We are to go to those who are hurting. We are to go to those in need because we have been trained by His Word. We've been trained by His example. We have been trained by His Holy Spirit working in our lives to love others with a merciful love so we need to go toward those that others run away from because a merciful love goes. Thirdly, a merciful love is a love that stays. The Samaritan doesn't just go to the man in need. He stays with the man in need. Merciful love takes time. He takes the time to put ointment on his wounds, to bandage them, to turn his own donkey into an ambulance he doesn't freak out and he sees this bloody man and oh, i can't i can't put him on my donkey he's going to mess up the upholstery it's genuine donkey leather the phrase that really sticks out to me it comes at the beginning of verse 35 and it's it's a phrase that we probably just skim right through it's this and the next day and the next day You see, the Samaritan's calendar, his schedule has just gotten rewritten. He stayed all night so that he could know that this man was okay and that his needs were taken care of. And I have to wonder, how many times do I miss the opportunity to show Jesus' love because I'm, I'm looking at my watch? I'm looking at my calendar, my next appointment, my to do list. I don't mind doing a little bit to help out, a little money here, volunteer a little there. But am I really willing to invest the time to stay and love with a merciful love? Are you willing to stay? Are we a church that stays? A merciful love is a love that sees. It's a love that goes. It's a love that stays. And fourthly, a merciful love is a love that gives. And we really see the Samaritan's love in his overflowing generosity. First, he uses his own supplies in verse 34. In verse 35, he pays two denarii to pay for his room at the inn and cover his expenses. That's two days' wages. But his generosity really kicks in at the end of verse 35 when he leaves his credit card with the innkeeper. Quote, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I'll cover whatever costs are incurred. Folks, that's a blank check. And that brings me to our final point this morning. A merciful love is a love that risks. Now, if I'm helping someone in need, I might I might take $20, $20 bill out of my wallet and help out, but I'm certainly not going to hand them my Visa card. Here, spend whatever you need. he could claim anything. He could abuse my generosity. He could take advantage. Yeah, he could. And it wasn't just the financial risk. I already mentioned there was a physical risk. What if those robbers had been using this beaten man as bait and they were still lying in wait somewhere? By stopping to even help the man, he was putting his own neck on the line. I don't think Jesus is telling us to be foolish with our money. I think in the context of the story, He he gives the money to a responsible business owner, the, the innkeeper. I think in the context of the story, He probably knew this man, had done business with him before, had stayed in his inn before. There was a level of trust there. He says, I will be back. But even with all of that, there's still some vulnerability. There is still risk. My point is this, that true love and complete safety and security do not coexist. You see, we want to love either others, but we often want to do it from a safe distance. We want to love without getting messy. We want to love without risk. But merciful love doesn't work like that. Because somebody can always take advantage of mercy. Merciful love risks just willing to lay it on the line for someone else. Vulnerability is necessary if we want to love like Jesus. And the reason is this. Loving from a safe distance doesn't help anybody. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't fix the situation. You've got to get close enough to get hurt yourself if you want to help somebody else. The Coast Guard has a motto You have to go out, you don't have to come back. Think about what that means. If there is a shipwreck or someone is lost at sea during a storm, as a Coast Guardsman, you've got to go out. Even if it means you don't come back. That's risk. But who, other than the church, has been sent by God to rescue those lost in the storms of life? This is what it is to truly love like Jesus. And think about this Jesus didn't love us from a safe distance, He loved us from a cross. If Jesus wanted to love us from a safe distance, He would have stayed in heaven at His Father's right hand. I'm sure Jesus loved us in heaven. He loved us lots. And He could have just stayed there and He could have loved us from there. But do you know what? It wouldn't have helped us. It wouldn't have given me what I need. I would still be lost in my sins. I would still be without hope. I would still be without heaven if Jesus had loved from a safe distance but it was that very love that drove Him to leave His throne in heaven, to leave His Father's right hand, and to come to earth as one of us. To live life as one of us. To be exposed. To be vulnerable. To be at risk from the trials and tribulations and temptations that we all face every day. And He loved us so much that He risked everything on the cross, made Himself completely vulnerable so that He might wipe away your sin, that He might take away your guilt and give you new life. And He did this on the cross even knowing that most people, most of us, would not love Him in return. Because narrow is the way and few are those who will find it. Did it anyway. There was nothing safe about the cross. But that's our model for love. And that's how we are to love others. And so let me close by asking you a question. Given how Jesus loved us from the cross, is there any good excuse to not love someone? Merciful love is loving even when it makes no sense at all. That's how Jesus loved us. And that's how He called us to love others. And my challenge for most of you here this morning is this, that you will leave here this morning, that you will go out into your week, whether it's at work or at school, Neighborhood, and you will see with merciful eyes. Because God might place someone in your path, someone lying in the middle of the road this week who needs merciful love. And that person is going to need someone who's coming along who sees, who goes who stays, who gives, and who risks. Maybe you can make all of the difference for somebody this week if you have merciful eyes. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in desperate need of merciful love. And I want you to know that the merciful love that Jesus showed for us on the cross He still shows. That merciful love is still available to anyone who would come to the cross. That Jesus still receives any who would follow Him. Maybe that's what you need this morning. If today is the day that you want to follow Christ and make Him your Lord and Savior, as we stand and sing this song, come through these double doors right here. I'll be right out there in the other room. And come speak with me. We're going to stand and sing this song. And I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up here and lead us in this. And as we sing the song, just pay attention. Is God tapping you on the shoulder this morning? Is He saying something to you about what you need to do, what you need to see, where you need to go, what you need to give? Listen to what he's telling. You. Let's see.